Hi and welcome to Hearsay. Thanks for tuning in. I've just come home from playing some Velvet Underground and Nico shows with Regurgitator at Sydney Festival and Mona, which has been super fun. It's been really fun being Nico and uh, singing an octave lower than I normally sing. Um, but yeah, all hands on deck now. I'm gonna. I've got heaps of great interviews lined up uh, this week, so tune in the next uh, few fortnights. I think it's going to be really exciting. Uh, my guest today is my dear friend Ben Salter. Ben has been and still is in loads of bands, including the Gin Club, the Wilson Pickers, Giants of Science, and of course his solo project under his own name. I've been lucky enough to play and sing with him both live and on his records, and I think he has my absolute favourite singing voice in Australia. I highly recommend seeing him play if you can. He does loads of solo shows uh, and they're all really special. The artwork for this podcast is by my amazing friend Spot, or Brent, as I like to call him. Uh, he is an amazing musician and artist in his own right and uh, just all-round legend, and he will definitely be on this podcast really soon. Hearsay podcast number seven, Ben Salter. Hey, poops. Um, for those listening, Ben and I call each other poops and it's revolting. I'm not sure why I started the podcast like that. <laughs> oh, it's, it's okay. I think it's because um, I'm always like, I get really crabby and then so you, I was I was poops. <laughs> I feel like it might have been a um, Rick and Morty thing. Oh, really? Like we, I think because I started calling you poopy butthole and then that just got short. Oh, of course, yeah. It's yeah. funny you should say that because I'm wearing my Christmas Rick and Morty shirt that Callum oh. got me. It's like <laughs> the most ugly thing you've ever seen in your life, but I love it so much. Like, what is it? What has uh, it got on it's, it? It's obviously a rip-off. It's, I don't know where he got it from, but it's like got um, Rick, Morty and um, Morty's sister, whose name I can never remember. Isn't that terrible? I can't either. I've w- yeah. We've watched all of them so many times. I know, and I still can't remember the sisters. In one ear and out the other. Anyway, <laughs> and they're all dancing like when they're doing the, the dance from the end of the first series. And then there's all these oh, snow, yeah. snowflakes in the background. And then there's the, the, the Father Christmas from, I think, that episode where the guy where they're inside the guy's body. You know, they're inside the... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's that guy. That's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> Good start to the podcast. I was going to say, hi, Ben, and then that just felt wrong. No. I, it reminds me of like when I, whenever I talk to your girlfriend, I, I want to refer to you as poops, but I feel like it's inappropriate. <laughs> no, she'd think it's great. Uh, anyway, um, how are you going? How are your feelings? I'm, I'm really good, actually. I'm really good. Like it's been a bit of a weird day. It's been really hot here in uh, Melbourne. And yeah. Um, but I did some gardening and I like weeded nice. the whole garden and ah. then Jack came home from work early and we went shopping and then we've just been playing Overwatch with Harley, our housemate. <laughs> and, and I'm going to make, um, I'm going to cook some dinner, like late supper, I guess you'd call it or whatever you call that one after dinner. Yeah, um, supper. Yeah, I'm going to cook some supper later. I'm going to make uh, my, one of my favourite uh, tuna pasta recipes. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, that sounds and, lovely. And I bought some tickets to go and see... Um, the dispossessed on Saturday, which I'm excited nice. about, and and yeah, everything's yeah, things are things are good. 
That sounds great. How about you? Are you good apart from, you I'm know, pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. I've just had this, you know, I've had this bug, but I'm feeling, I'm feeling optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good. I've got a glass of whiskey in front of me. I've got the fancy whiskey from Lark that I think I might have oh, got when we were there yeah, together. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff. Yeah. Yep. Surprised we didn't drink it when we were there together. I think <laughs> oh, I saved I got it. Through my, I went through my hip flask pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, I think it was the next day. Um, so let's talk about, you know, your music and let, let's talk about um, how did you discover music? What was your first memory of music when you were little? Um, oh, gee, that's a good question. Um, I, I remember there was always music on in car trips. So we were one of those families, I guess, like most families that would go on holiday car trips. Yeah. And we would always have um, our grandmother on my mother's side, uh, my nana, would always buy us. She was obsessed with Australia all over. So, you know, that show that's still going now on the ABC with the quasi-nationalist uh, Ian McNamara. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with like most of what he says, but then there's like a lot of what he says is, yeah. Anyway, we won't go down that path. But they would do these compilations of, of all the tracks that he would play on the show and there'd be lots of Ted Egan, who's that old bush poet guy, and there'd be like yeah. Australian bush songs. But then my dad was really into um, Creedence Clearwater and, Great. and also Gary Puckett and the Union Cap and <laughs> just all sorts of weird stuff. So there was always sort of music around, even though neither of my parents are particularly musical, like they don't play an instrument. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and and then, yeah, it just sort of went on from there, I guess. But did you, did you have instruments in the house, even though they didn't play anything? No, I mean we had. Um, I remember we had a a snare drum that my dad got when he left the army that they presented to him. Um, but then my sister had a guitar that had belonged to my uncle Michael, um, so that was the first instrument, and I tried to to play that, but um, it was had the most incredibly high action, like, and it was really ah, hard to play. Painful. Yeah, and I sort of got sick of it really quickly, and then I got into bagpipes because these two kids from my school. <laughs> that were way older than me, that were f sort of friends with my sister and they were, they turned up to one of our school swimming carnivals or sports days or something one day with their bagpipes and played and I guess I had that reaction that a lot of people have with bagpipes where it's quite, you know, it's quite sort of stirring. It's really and in your face, yeah. Yeah, and for a sort of an adolescent um, nerd, you know, that stirring feeling is quite, you know, stirring. So, <laughs> and, and, and the other thing was that they practised... Um, just like next door to my house at the school, this um, this school across the road from my house. So um, I, I went and learnt like bagpipes for like two wow. years. Wow, that's mm. amazing you didn't find it annoying. You found it stirring in a good way. Yeah, I mean, I guess when you're that young and then as the older I get, the more annoying I find it. But yeah. um, And my dad is like sort of all upset that I never kept playing the bagpipes because for him that's like, you know, it's quite martial and, yeah, um, yeah. you know. But, um, you know, I can, yeah, it was... It was good fun. So bagpipes was your first instrument. Yeah, and then um, and then, then when I got into rock and roll, so like then I wasn't really a rock into music that much, but I slowly started to get into it like in around year nine, ten. Okay. And I got into bands through my best friend's older brother who was into Guns N' Roses heaps. So it was, it was Gunners and kind of like hair metal? Gunners, yeah, and a bit of Bon Jovi. and But then I was also really into – my mother had bought Graceland when we first moved to – um, when we first moved to Townsville, so I, I listened to Graceland heaps. And then my sister, she's probably got the biggest influence on my taste because she had really great music taste and she would go, um, she was six years older than me, so she would go and see like Hoodoo Gurus. She loved Hoodoo Gurus and Kids awesome. in the Kitchen. And um, 
uh, all that sort of era. And then she went through a, a Cure phase and she was into The Cure and then she was into The Beatles, heavily into The Beatles. So we, I remember she got the White Album for one Christmas and we listened to the White Album like heaps. But then as far as me, yeah, it started, Gun, Gunners were like the big one and then Grunge just hit, like Nirvana came out, Pearl Jam. Yeah, um, yeah. And I was just, you know, and... And Soundgarden and Smashing Pumpkins and and I went to um, the big day out at the Gold Coast Parklands in '94 and, yeah. and I saw saw the still thinking I was just going to be a comic book artist that's what I always wanted to be wow uh, and I saw the Smashing Pumpkins and I was just like that's it that's what I want to do <laughs> <laughs> so did so were you a kid that really liked drawing is that why you wanted to make yeah I loved it I loved comics and I loved drawing that's all I did was draw and read comics and play oh. Dungeons and Dragons or try to find people to play Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> with. And, um, yeah, a lot of comics. I read a lot of comics. Do you still draw? Mm, I don't think not, I've seen you draw much except not for really, like no. silly drawings. No, I've sort of stopped. Um, yeah, no, not really. I mean, I still do a lot of posters and yeah, yeah. Um, stuff like that. But, yeah, I don't really draw. Um, I should do it more, I guess. I don't know. You I've, should. Yeah. I'm quite lazy with my create creative output. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> no, it's very. It's it's really true. Yeah, it's all Overwatch these days. <laughs> do you play that on separate Playstations? Yeah, it's pretty sad in our house. So we, I got obsessed. You know, when it came out, which was just when I, just funnily enough, when I started recording my album, and I, <laughs> I um, and I played and played and played, and then Harley started. My housemate started playing on my playstation when i was away and then he went and got his own and then when i was away another time jacqueline my girlfriend who's a little bit of a gamer but not much she started playing and she had hated the game up till then and then now she's obsessed so she bought a playstation <laughs> as well so now we yeah. have the three of us sit in our rooms and our other housemate kate whose room i'm sitting in right now her room is filled with art and music recording equipment <laughs> and paintings <laughs> And to so do's, lovely. and she's so motivated, and and then all I do is just play Overwatch. <laughs> so, anyway, I love the idea that you have three separate playstations I know, playing playing each other. <laughs> and when we tell people, like we'll 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 start playing with people online, um, and start talking to them, and they'll be like, "So, do you guys know each other in real life?" And we'll just start laughing. It'll be like, "Uh, yeah, yeah, we we sort of do." <laughs> <laughs> We're in love. We just have our own PlayStation. Yeah, yeah. We're all sitting here um, in the nude. <laughs> um. So back to tell me how you got from playing bagpipes to playing guitar. Like, when did you first pick up guitar? Was that when you heard Soundgarden and Gunners and stuff? Well, and yeah, a little bit before then, but I just didn't take to it. But then once I saw, you know, Billy Corgan on stage you know, smashing out amazing solos and wailing. And yeah, yeah. I got back, like, so I went, to, that was at the beginning of my year 12. 94 was my year 12 year. Um, and I went to the, you know, the big day out was obviously in the new year. So it was yeah. the start of the year. And I went back and was like, to tutor my best friend, I'm like, right, I'm teaching you guitar and we're starting a band. And that was it, you know, it, and then he picked it up straight away and he was much more adept at playing lead guitar than, than I was and so he would play all the lead pits and I'd play um, the rhythm bits and, and then we would just, we started doing covers and we found other people and by the end of year 12 we were in the Battle of the Bands and... Great. Um, yeah, and then it just, I haven't really stopped since then, <laughs> I guess. That's like, great. Yeah. What do, what do you remember the name of your first band? Uh, what were we called? There was a band called Outside Help, which because we, we were very obsessed with blues 
stuff oh, yeah. as well because we just would read guitar magazines as you do. Yeah. Um, and there's a there's a song by BB King called Outside Help, which we really loved. So we called ourselves that, and then we had a band called The Purple Hearts. Um, also and we, good. And we, yeah, well, we didn't realise that there was a very famous band from Brisbane in the you know seventies called The Purple Hearts. I didn't even uh, know that now. Yeah, they're in the they're in the mall. They're in, they've got a thing ah, in the mall. I think. Really? I think so yeah, I think. Is, is that a casual hint that you have a thing in the mall? In no, Brisbane? no, not at all. <laughs> well, the thing is, we named ourselves after Purple Hearts, as in the you know what you get when you get injured in the U.S. Army or whatever. But Purple Hearts were also like this really popular amphetamine, um, this purple pills that people used to take in the seventies. Apparently, so we had no, yeah. We yeah, had no right. inkling of that. But then, so, yeah, the two of us, um, Chute and I decided after, t- uh, we had two years in Townsville and in between I went to uni for one, for two years in Townsville, I should say. Um, and in between I went to Europe and then I got back to Townsville and went, I'm not staying here. So we moved to Brisbane in 1997, uh, the start of 97. Okay. You and your we, best friend. Yeah, me and Ben Chute. Um, yep. So and we moved down and then we just started playing in bands straight away um, with people we met at uni and yeah. Yeah, cool. And what kind of music was it? Oh, I think by that stage I was pretty obsessed with Radiohead, with the Bends. Yeah. Like I went through my Smashing Pumpkins um, obsession sort of petered out and then I became re- got really into the Bends and OK Computer Um and then we met Steve, who was the drummer for Giants of Science, and he sort of introduced us to Caius. Um, and and then I sort of, you know, discovered marijuana and drinking a lot and stuff and got into, like, much more heavy stuff. Like, although I'd already been into, you know, Soundgarden and stuff. but Yeah. Yeah, but, like, we – and then we started listening to a lot of Caius. And then when the first Queens of the Stone Age album came out, we were just like, oh, my God, this is just um, amazing and – yeah. So, yeah, all those, like, influences sort of ended up in this, yeah, with uh, Giants of Science, which was my first sort of band that did anything serious, I guess. So, when, what year did Giants of Science start? Um, probably, like, late 98 or early 99 or in the middle of 99, something like that. Yeah. I remember yeah. that it was a sort of the same time as my band Sekidan started. Mm. And I remember there was a time in Brisbane music where Giants of Science were just getting every international support, it seemed. Yeah. Or maybe just like every like heavy rock international. Yeah, support. all the heavy rock ones we got, uh, like all the big bands from Australia. I mean, not so many international ones at that stage, but we got, um, like we got, we toured with Radio Birdman, we played with like Tumbleweed and so just great. Yeah, it was awesome. So, were you ever like a massive fan of those bands and and intimidated, or were you always kind of feeling like, you know, this is where I belong? No, I don't know. I think I don't know whether it was. I, I feel like I spent all of my twenties just sort of drunk and like cocky, <laughs> and like I don't know. Like I, we were so. I mean, I guess in retrospect, we were so cocky. I mean, it's not that we thought we were better than any of those bands, and we loved. And this was back when I. I was also busking for a living. And, yeah, I remember and that. And so I was like going, I was spending all of my money on CDs, like every type of stuff, classical, you know, maybe not jazz, but like rock and, and that's when sort of trip hop and stuff and and that post trip hop stuff and like dancey, everything. Like that's when I was reading every music magazine and every, like I was, you know, so I was just, I was firmly like had a just huge... Obsessed. Well, and I had an idea of where we sat. You know, I was so in love with rock and roll and in love with the yeah. life, the culture, and the you know, and I had some great mentors like Richard Hunt from 
um, hits or back then he was in he was Strata and Amparellas and they had yeah. Steve Bell and um, and they were really good because they taught me about the history of music in Australia and then where we sp- and I felt like I knew where we sat in it and yeah um, and I knew you know but I think I took for granted that we were getting all these amazing sort of supports and stuff I think you, you just don't really know yeah um, yeah until later on when you go oh my god that was pretty cool but but well, I think we're also yeah we're a good band so you know yeah you're a great band I I mean I think Sacred and Giants of Science played together a, a bunch of times too, yeah and yeah I always totally. remember thinking you guys were so much tougher than us <laughs> oh, but I always remember I loved you guys because I loved like, I mean, I loved Turnstile and I loved all these like what you'd call, I mean, softer or like more pop, you know, synthy. And I loved you guys and you guys, you know, amongst all the rock people, they'd be like, oh, fucking second and like Alexander Bell. And I'm like, what's, shut up, you guys. Like, you just sound like <laughs> douchebags. Like, you know, and we were good friends with all the permanent records people as well. Yeah, and I think yeah, they realized right. that we weren't, because we played with a lot of meathead stoner bands and we weren't those guys. We just weren't like that. We weren't. Yeah. And we'd get lumped in and called a stoner band and we're like, we're not a stoner band. Like, I mean, we, we have a few riffs like that, but that's just not our mentality. We're not these like, lumber-headed we were all just total dorks and nerds <laughs> really so we sort of had this weird foot in both camps you know so yeah, yeah. did you mm. spend a lot of your time in in record stores talking to Richard and stuff then was that oh, what you yeah. were doing with your time yeah well that and then and then between busking and getting drunk and going to rehearsal and trying to go to university as well and but yeah a lot of time and then I'd go over to Richard's place um after maybe after that I guess but I got to be good mates with Richard and, and I moved in with Steve Bell and then, you know, good friends with all the Rhythm Ace, the, our label, and then um, and then after that, yeah, it turned into plus one, but yeah. I remember, I always remember like going into Rocking Horse and seeing Richard and, and thinking he looked like such a grumpy asshole. Like he looked like such oh, a ju- well, judgmental yeah. person. <laughs> no, but I, I remember thinking like without talking to him, I was always like, he's such a grumpy dude and then... When I got to know him and, you know, he was so passionate about music and he'd always, like, tell me about cool things that I would like. Yeah. If, you know, if you like pavement, you'll like, you know, Huskadoo or whatever. And, you know, he, he'd, like, always, totally. like, try and, try and turn me on to, like, other cool stuff. Yeah. I mean, they were such a good bunch of, I mean, your classic record store dudes. I mean, all yeah. of them, though, were great. Tom and Scott and, you know. Um, all the rocking horse yeah um, they were just amazing and and but Richie really took a punt on Giants because I mean he was booking his whole scene was that real nasty rock and roll like helicopters yeah old old Brisbane a bit of the Onyas and and Strata obviously his band and that lineage coming all the way from the Saints and the Leftovers and yeah all those sorts of bands and here's us you know wearing our sort of Smashing Pumpkins and (laughs) and Pearl Jam and and you know, radio had influences on our sleeve, but he was booking us at his venues with all these, like the Magneto whores and, you know, the Hymies and all these bands we're playing with. And then we're playing with like Rollerball and, you know, all these stoner bands and stuff. And then we're also playing with like Dollar Bar. And so it was just, it was weird. I mean, that's, and that's why Brisbane's so great, you know. I don't think it could have happened in, in many other places. Certainly couldn't probably happen in Melbourne or sydney back then i don't think so yeah it's hard to imagine because i yeah, yeah i think i remember like giants of science playing with a lot of pop bands as well mm. um 
well, you know, it would it probably wouldn't have happened in any, in any other town that Sekiden and Giants of Science would have been on the same bill. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, but it was just a group of friends, I guess. Having said that, I feel like we weren't really friends back then. No, we weren't at all. Like, <laughs> and I, I didn't. And as I said, I remember you telling me this anecdote about oh, we played with you guys with um with Jebediah, I think it was. Yeah, that's right. And you were yeah. like, you guys were just being jerks, and I'm like, that does <laughs> yeah. not surprise me at all because I remember that show. I remember we got it was at the. Uh, the uni bar. Yeah, QUT yeah. or whatever. And I was, um, oh, we just got so drunk and we ran up on stage <laughs> and were sticking giants, stickers on the Jebediah guys' guitars. That's and right, I remember that. While they were playing it. I'm just yeah. like, that's so fucking rude. <laughs> like, but that's the stuff, kind of stuff we used to do all the time. We just thought we were indestructible <laughs> and we, and the, the, the drinking culture was a little bit out of control, you know, it was sort yeah, of like, yeah. just drinking way too much. So, um, yeah, so, but, but yeah, we, I mean, I never had, I, I just didn't even, no, you guys. It was like they're just like no. aliens. I just used to look at you guys and go like, "Wow, they're so cool and <laughs> oh no, and you didn't. tall and <laughs> yeah, we did." But we just we just thought we were cooler, you know. That's I think that's just I think that's just the way it goes, you know. So my first memory of you before we played together and stuff was that you used to busk mainly doing Beatles covers. Yeah, and you were like this staple in the Queen Street Mall in Brisbane. And you know you were like the kind of buskers that people would stop for and watch and yeah. and clap and you know it was like a real different thing to just watching, you know, other buskers do boring stuff. It yeah. was like a really amazing performance. Um, how did that start? Like who who were the other dudes? I don't even remember who the other dudes were. Um, so well, it started just just before we decided to move to um, to to Brisbane to pursue our fame and fortune or, or just to get the hell out of Townsville. Um, ben, I'll, I'll just refer, refer to him as Chute because it might get, I don't know. If okay, too many Bens. Chutey, uh, Chutey um, and I had been busking in Townsville and we'd gone, oh, we'd actually done quite well and we used to learn like crowded house songs and, um, and but we'd also do like heaps of Oasis and, and Radiohead and Blur songs and all the songs that were popular at the time, you know, that sort of stuff that we were into. And then when we first moved to Brisbane, we decided, oh, let's, um, like, let's do it. Like, let's go busking. And so they had auditions. You'd have to do an audition to get a, a busking license in the mall. And so we went to the audition. Yeah, and we learned a bunch of songs and we harmonised really well together. So we started busking and we do mainly, um, yeah, we do like, you know, Crowded House and Beatles and like I said, same sort of stuff. A lot of Radiohead and alt rock sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and we'd do reasonably well, but there was this other guy that would busk in the mall that would do Beatles songs. And he, I think he had a duo for a while, but busking's weird. You never talk to the other buskers. It's really strange. Yeah. It's like that's classic musician, classic musician <laughs> shit. No musicians, all musicians are out for, to get the, all the other musicians. <laughs> and anyway, one day um, I went and watched Michael and was, I remember he had a capo and I didn't have a capo and I, and I really wanted to learn, play this song with a capo and I, I don't know. <laughs> Anyway, he just said, do you want to do some songs together? And we started playing together. So Chute and I and this um, other guy, Michael uh, Billinghurst. Um, and it just, we just got a response. We started making a lot of more money because the three-part harmonies. Um, yeah, special. Yeah, there's something about them that really grabbed people. And we just started to realise that the Beatles stuff was the most most popular stuff. And we were totally happy to just play nothing but Beatles because we loved Beatles. I mean, I yeah. still, I just absolutely love them. So... Um, that became our thing and then we became, I was like famous. I mean, at one stage they had um, postcards you could buy in the Queen Street Mall that had us on the postcard. Really? And we went and said to them like, oh, can we, you know, can we get any 
royalties. And I think they said to us, well, no, because you're, pub, you're in the public. So you don't get any rights to your own image being used, which may have or may not have been utter bullshit, but this was sort of in the early days of the internet and I don't think we really could be fucked, yeah. you know, working it out. And we were going in busking competitions and then we would get heaps of people would come and say, can you come and play at my party? So it was like every weekend we were playing at someone's party and getting like, we would make like 700 bucks to play for three hours wow. or something. Which once again back then was like, pretty good money so we were earning like a hundred dollars each four days a week or five days a week um just busking and that was sort of paying for the rent and then also doing these gigs and just drinking and then i was doing giants but i was way more famous for being that guy from the mall than i was for being giants and i was really conflicted about it for ages because people view buskers as sort of beggars basically um that's the perception and i sort of Went up and down and up and down. I mean, I haven't been busking now since I went overseas, oh, probably two or three years ago. I went a little bit in England, but yeah, um, there's definitely... Oh, no, actually, I went busking. I was busking at the Mullumbimby at the New Brighton Markets two weeks ago. Oh, really? <laughs> a, week, a week ago. Yeah, yeah. So, I have been busking recently, yeah. But, um, but yeah, I sort of worked it out. I had to tack, like really tackle with it in my mind and I was like hang on a minute, like, this is a perfectly respectable way to make money. Like, you're yeah, entertaining people. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing – if people think it's uncool, well, fuck them, you know. And I think I there were a lot of – I thought it was uncool. Yeah, but a lot of people would have. I mean, you know what people are like. You know, remember the tomb, the time off for <laughs> Yeah. I never Let's used to read it, up. but people would tell me they would just be like, oh, geez, there's just people bagging you out on the forum. Oh, I'm like, no. well, they can, if they've got a problem, they can come and talk to me to my face. Like, I don't – you know, I'm just like – my band's played with, you know, Radio Birdman and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I went yeah. up and down with worrying about it and and we had our ups and downs with that group as well. And um, But, yeah, so... Oh, Michael I loved a, it. Oh, cool. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I always knew you as the guy from the mall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everyone But I did. thought that was really cool. I thought it, oh, like, cool. and you guys were so amazing. It's definitely like a, a real Brisbane staple for me, like back in the... You yeah, know, whenever that was, early two thousands or whatever. Yeah, late yeah, early two thousands. I mean, 90s. I still have people coming. People come up to me now and say, "Oh, I remember I used to see you busk, you know, all the time." Um, yeah, and we'd have our regulars. We became really good friends with people that would come and watch us all the time. You know, met people from all over the world. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I feel like you're in more bands than anyone else I know. So you've got Giants, you've got Gin Club, you've got Wilson Pickers, you've got yep. Honoma and then you yep. do your solo and duo stuff and yep. probably other other groups that I can't think yeah, of right the, now. Yeah, the Young Liberals and Anna Gazanthus and um, yeah, that's about it at the moment. But yeah. <laughs> That's just so crazy. Yeah. Um, tell me, how did you keep collecting these bands? So was so was the Gin Club the next one after Giants that you started? Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Okay, so from the busking, we got this gig um, at the O'Malley's Pub, uh, which was at that stage, well, still is, under the Queen Street Mall in Brisbane, yeah. under the Winter Garden building or under the Hilton, I guess you'd yeah, call it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so um, back then it was a lot different. It was smaller and... Um, and so you had O'Malley's and then you had the Her Majesty's, which I don't think is there anymore. And and um, the pub owner said, do you want to come and run an open mic night? And so Chute and I from Giants or from the busking group, whatever, both um, went and ran this open mic night. And when we'd grown up in Townsville, I, I'd 
the open mic night that we went to in Townsville was like a big thing for me. You know, I was really um, was where I got my first chance to play live, and I was I was really excited about it. And so I thought, you yeah, know, this will be great, and I'll I'll do this emphasis on um, original stuff. And so bef- even before, I think we sort of missed a bit because before Giants. Um, when I first moved to Brisbane, I was also doing solo shows. So I was playing at the oh, Alley, okay. uh, the Alley in Milton, and a few other places, doing mainly covers, but doing a few. I had these few couple of sort of songs that didn't quite fit in. And then when Giants sort of started playing, they sort of fell by the wayside, and I forgot about those. Yeah. But then we started doing the open mic night and doing the Beatles songs, and then I'd play. I'd go, oh, I can play my those quiet acoustic songs that I've got, and um, all these disparate group of people turned up to the open mic night um including this guy from sweden who was just traveling through and saw our flyer and then these two people from harvey bay one of whom was the sister of a guy in a band that giants of science played with yeah. um, but she would just come and hang out with us because we used to go to the we used to go to O'Malley's all the time after we'd busk that's how we knew the owners yeah. would count, count our money there we'd <laughs> um we'd go to the trivia night there a whole bunch of us um uh, and all these people turned up. There was this other guy who, who was like had a family business um, who was just this sort of guy that was into Hootie and the Blowfish and um, <laughs> but was really passionate about music and he would turn up. And so we ended up having these regulars and they would and I would really encourage them to play their own songs. And so yeah. they would start playing their own songs and we all got to know them. So eventually we'd all start getting up on stage and singing them with them. And then we started to have – we had like five or six of us and we're like, this is great. And I was I was just actually – blown away by how good these songs were but i knew that these people wouldn't do gigs you know unless they were pushed it wasn't okay. going to be like and so i just sort of pushed them all i said oh well, let's start a band and then we started hanging out outside of the pub and going to people's houses and jamming yeah and we still didn't really have a name but um we uh three of us booked a show at rick's one day and I've still got recordings of it so it was myself connor mcdonald and adrian stoyles yeah and connor and adrian i met through the open mic night um, at O'Malley's and these two guys came up to us afterwards and said, oh, we're starting this venue over the road, like over the mall. We'd really like you guys to play the opening night. Like it's going to be called The Troubadour and like, do you want to come and ha-? And we were like, oh, yeah, okay. And they're like, do you want to come and have a look? And we went, walked up the stairs and we just looked in and there was nothing like that in Brisbane. I mean, it was this really nice, dark place with this great stage and it was it was beautifully decked out i mean these days yeah. you would see bars like that everywhere but back then it was you know it had just old vintage furniture everywhere and we were just like oh my god this is amazing and so we we're like yes of course we'll play and they didn't um and then and the giants were still going at this point but i was sort of getting a bit i guess i was getting a bit sick of doing giants and for whatever reason and or needed another outlet or whatever um and so, yeah, when they didn't have a name and we didn't have a name for this group that we had where it was all of us. And so, and we we had a few gigs there with various different, you know, sort of manifestations of these sort of six or seven people that we had. And and then um, we were just, it, we were all still drinking quite a lot and we were drinking a lot of gin. And they <laughs> just one day instead of, we had no name and they would have Ben Salter and, the, and I'm like, I'm not comfortable with that. And so they just put Ben Salter and the gin club up on the board and i was like well that sounds a bit like the gun club like yeah (laughs) that'll do so that's how we got the gin club and then and then that just like as you you know as you probably know when you do side projects we we went and recorded an album really quickly and it just sort of took off so um so who was in it at that point um at that point so there was myself and ben chute still from giants yep um and then we had bridget lewis 
on cello. Yeah. Whose brother Paul played in Double Chamber and New Jack Rubies and and then we had Connor McDonald, uh Adrian Stoyles, Brad Pickerskill, Ulla Carlson and oh Scott Regan, of course. Scotty was well this is the funny thing. So Scott used to come when he was in high school and watch us busk. And we'd always do Oasis and songs for him because he was such a huge fan of and then he moved to Ireland for like two years and I thought he just disappeared. And then he came back and started coming to the open mic night. So it was really weird. It was this weird sort of continuity. So I've known Scott since he was in yeah, year eleven. Oh, or something. that's awesome. Yeah. So and then the gin club just sort of took off and then the Giants went on hiatus and me and Judy, um Ben had a big falling out for a while. So we didn't Giants sort of effectively was over. And yeah. Gin Club played heaps of shows and yeah. Did you do a lot of touring with Gin Club or did you were you sort of mainly Brisbane based? No, we did lots of touring. We played in Melbourne heaps and we actually got this really good following in Melbourne um quite early on. Um in fact at one stage we were sort of bigger in Melbourne than we were in Brisbane. Yeah, um, right. We'd just get yeah, we'd play these the old bar or the gym and stuff and just pack the place out and yeah, it was really special. Yeah. Did you have a um, booking agent? Um, no, we were just um, going, doing it all ourselves pretty much, just getting in touch with venues and yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Yeah, we were on Plus, we were the first release that Plus One did, that Simon did, so he was... Yeah. He, I mean, I shouldn't say that, effectively Simon was booking a lot of the shows to start with um, and then, yeah, so Simon was doing, running the label, so managing a bit and booking and yeah. And we went overseas, we went to the States and played at Muse Expo in LA and... Oh, Cool. Yeah, so... And yeah. then, so, sort of adjacently to that, were you, you were doing some other music too, right? Were you still playing solo? Yeah, sporadically I do solo shows. Um, but I still hadn't decided to take the solo stuff really seriously. I mean, I didn't really make that decision until I turned 30 and then I went... I kept talking about doing a solo album and then I kept giving all those songs to Gin Club. And then I went, yeah. oh, but there'd always be a few left over that weren't quite right for whatever reason. And and the gin club thing didn't totally suit my, what I wanted to do with the solo thing. So, yeah. but then in the meantime, we also started, um, we, we picked up a few extra members in the gin club, like Dan Mansfield and Gus Agars um, and Dale Peachy played with us for a while um, yeah, from Dollar Bar. And I started this band called The Young Liberals with Chris Yates. I was living with Chris for a while and with Chris and Dan Mansfield and, the, and my girlfriend Joe at the time. Yeah. So we, we did like, we tried to do like 12 albums in 12 months. We ended up doing like four albums in five months and then we've since done another couple with different lineups. But yeah. yeah right. <laughs> so we were doing shows as well. We did a few shows, yeah. And that was like a like more of a heavy rock thing, wasn't it? Or like loose rock? Yeah, it started out because I saw the Black Lips in playing Wellington of all places and then um, was just so enamoured of them. Like that was early on when they first started and... Um, I was just like, oh, God, I could do that stuff. Like, I love that shit, you know. I mean, I loved the Sonics and loved um, early garage rock and stuff and Nuggets and all that stuff. And I'm like, they're just doing that yeah. shit, but they've just got this fucking completely um, snotty attitude, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so we started doing it. Yeah, so it was a bit like that. It was really loose and really just we'd write all the songs. Uh, I mean, that, that was the important thing is that we'd write all the song titles and then write the songs to the titles and then just record <laughs> them like record them like twice and then that was it. Yeah. That's awesome. I still, mm. I think I've only ever heard like one album that you guys did. Oh, there's some great, great stuff. Yeah, yeah. there's <laughs> some good stuff there. There's a lot of like very strange <laughs> stuff, but yeah. 
<laughs> and then when the Wilson Pickers thing was was a bit later, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. So Wilson Pickers was about five years ago. So that was after I'd already done, oh, maybe just after I'd done my first solo album or whatever. Um, I think, I think, I can't remember the timeline. I, I don't even know. I mean, I, That's fine. Not many people can. <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, but I think Wilson Pickers was about five years ago. And what spurred that? Oh, well, Andrew Morris put it together because he'd been touring with Bernard Fanning um, solo band to the States and he met this guy, John Bedgegood, who's like a multi-instrumentalist from Melbourne and they'd both gone and seen all this um, bluegrassy stuff over in the States and they were like, oh, I want to put together... Because Andrew, obviously, we toured with Andrew heaps with Gin Club, become quite good friends with him. Yeah. And so he just rang... And he'd seen me play banjo once at this Neil Young tribute thing and I can't play banjo. I mean, I couldn't play banjo at all then. But he's <laughs> like, you can play banjo. And I was like... Andrew, I really can't. Like, I really actually can't. But he was like, no, no, no. But, but I think he mainly got me because I could sing good. So Yeah, and you can so sing we, good. Yeah, so we – and then we started <laughs> that. And, of course, that – the first album we did got nominated for an ARIA and it was like we got signed to ABC and it was just like – yeah, it was weird, you know. And, I, I mean, I've never been – the Wilson Pickers have never really been 100% where my heart is as far as music-wise – but I love all yeah. those guys so much and it's so much fun playing it that, you know, it's I find it hard to just turn it down, you know, because it's just yeah. on stage, it's just so much fun and the and the and those guys are, you know, just beautiful people. So it's like, yeah, you know. It must be nice to, I guess, to be a part of a sort of hand-selected bunch of people where, where everyone is known to be good at what they do. Um, you're not just getting like a, a friend in who's kind of, you know, a nice person to have around. Yeah, well, I mean, I I was a bit confused at the start about <laughs> exactly why I'd been recruited. But in retrospect, I've realised, wow, yeah, you know, when, especially because I left the group for ages because I was just too busy and I said, look, I can't yeah. do this anymore. And all these people were like, oh, you have to come back. It's not the same without you. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's pretty It nice. is pretty amazing. I mean, I hadn't seen you guys play in ages and then I saw you guys last year um, at the Trifford and it, I was so blown away at, at the harmonies it's just so beautiful how because you all have really different voices yeah but yeah, it just totally. work it really works together yeah it's it's good yeah, i mean it's beautiful. it's beautiful on stage i mean it's it's funny the smaller the gig the better i reckon for that band i mean i they always get carried away with fall back and wanting everything to be louder than everything else and i'm just like it's so much better when it's just like we've got no i mean i always thought that about the gin club as well like yeah as soon as you get big pas and everyone's got their own fallback everyone stops listening to everyone else and it's like yeah that's right yeah i mean it's for, for those sort of acoustic bands i think um the less you can get away with the better but you know that's it you know but then you also want to be able to hear yourself and then it just turns into that you know endless battle totally yeah <laughs> i mean it'd be hard for bridget with her cello because oh know, absolutely like yeah yeah it's hard to hear that shit over a guitar or a bellowing voice poor bridget i mean i, I pretty much just bullied bridget into being in the band and <laughs> And then she just have to put up with shit from me for the next <laughs> ten years, pretty much. I'm glad she stuck with it, though. <laughs> wouldn't be the same without her. She's no, a pretty integral wouldn't. part. Yeah, and then she's written like, I mean, she's only written two songs for the band, but they're probably in the top five of my favourite songs of, of the whole band. So yeah. <laughs> so can I go back to when you were um, starting to play guitar after you went to Big Doubt, um, and you wanted to be in a rock band? Like, yeah. how did? Can you tell me how you were – were you teaching yourself guitar? 
Uh, well, my brother-in-law, that was another thing, was my brother-in-law, my, this guy my sister had just met, um, he was played guitar, so he showed me a few things and then I was going to guitar lessons at school and then, but just a lot of, yeah, just teaching yourself, you know, just, you know what it's like when you're that age. Yeah. You seem to have endless concentration and there was... For sure. And you just sit in the room and just play guitar literally yeah. for four or five hours. I mean, that's something I just can't even think fathom anymore. No, me um, either. But, um, yeah, and then I remember teaching myself finger-picking and I remember just going, thinking I was going to go insane trying to learn those 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 patterns, you know, just going, I, yeah. want it, I want it to sound like that. And you'd see people play and go, it was like magic, you know, like yeah. how, do, how do they play that? Like, And so you just sit there laboriously just putting one finger after another trying to get two in a row and then three in a row and then four in a row. and um, But, yeah, and then – and also with – you know, when I was in Townsville going to the open mic night and so playing songs at the open mic night and getting feedback and getting people say, you know, I remember that I, I actually recently saw um, at the show that we did, f- the last Waltz show, which was, I guess, a year ago now, but a guy named Tom Aubrey who used to run the James Cook Tavern in Townsville and would yeah. always give me shows and encourage me and um, he was there and he was like, I hadn't seen him for like 20 years or something. Wow. And I was like, he's like, Ben, you know, that was so great. And I'm like, Tom, oh my God, you know, I haven't seen <laughs> you for so long. And thanks so much for encouraging me. And I don't know what I would have done if, Aww. you know, it's pretty amazing. And, and then that was the other big influence I had, major, major, that I always forget and I feel terrible was my next door neighbor, Alan Luke, who's now a, um, he might have retired now, but for a long time he was a, an English professor, both at up in James, James Cook University and at, at UQ in Brisbane. And he was like a 60s, complete opposite of my father or my family, like total hippie in the 60s, yeah. went to Wood, Woodstock, you know, him and his um, – and, and he had this amazing record collection and he had an amazing guitar collection and he would show me stuff on guitar all the time. And I'm still right. friends with, with Alan now. Um, so, and yeah. And so, what, so what kind of stuff was he teaching you? What kind of stuff were um, you playing I remember he, sh- he would play me like stuff like Santana and um, – and then he'd show me simple riffs and licks, like blues licks, because I'd play yeah. a lot of blues, and he'd show me little licks, and, and he'd give me albums. I mean, I remember before that love, that forever changes, before that became popular again, you know, it sort of went through this yeah, revival. Yeah. But way before then, he gave me this album, said, you've got to hear this band called Love, and I'd never heard of them. You know, I'd never even read about them. And he, I remember he got Mojo when Mojo first started coming out, and this sort of, this would have been like 95, um, or 96 and he would finish reading it and give it to me. So I'd read this mojo and they were this big format, you know, and you couldn't get them anywhere and he'd get them sent over from the States and just read these about these albums and they'd have buried treasures and then you you couldn't find the albums anywhere, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, yeah. And then so he, you, yeah. you loved the, al- the Love album? Uh, I can't remember. I don't remember particularly loving it. I just remember listening to it and going, oh, my God, this is so strange. And I remember he gave yeah. me Jeff Buckley's album, uh, Grace before it, uh, like a year before it came out in Australia, because I, I think it got released um, a lot later here oh, than okay. it did in the yeah. states. But he was always going back and forth to the states and bringing stuff back. And then he actually bought me back my first, my first Stratocaster, my first electric proper wow. electric guitar, because he rang my dad from the states in the middle of the night, and they never told me this story till later, and said, oh, "I've got this great guitar for Ben. You know, I want to buy it for him, but do you guys want to help pay for it?" And it was funny because my dad and Luke had Alan had this relationship, even though they were diametrically opposed. My dad being this army guy and 
Alan being this sort of hippie. Yeah. <laughs> but he rang and then they got it for me as a, and I came home one day from school and it was in, like, oh, sitting in my room. That's so lovely. Like, oh, and I was so in love with it, you know. It was yeah. so, I've still got it now. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. that's so nice. Yeah. <laughs> so it was pretty cool. Yeah. I am um, speaking of love. I remember the first time I heard that love album, and it was probably in its resurgence. Yeah. Um, but I remember just not liking it at all. Like I, yeah, you know right. that. Well, just you know that like, and the snot has caked against my pants. Like that kind yeah, of yeah. like <laughs> really sort of like hippie. Oh, it's dribble. quite baroque and strange. I mean, it's like <laughs> taking a time machine. It's really yeah. odd. It's odd music. Yeah, yeah but, but now well. I've I it just grew on me like crazy i I love that album now yeah Um, it's pretty great but yeah it's funny like that that first impression you have of some things when you're younger you know and then you get older and really appreciate it yeah (laughs) absolutely yeah yeah and there's so many bands like that that i just never yeah never liked when i first heard and then yeah me too yeah yeah Yeah. and then bands you loved when you're younger that you just hate now (laughs) yeah Um, so tell me about when when you finally decided to record your first solo album, The Cat. Yeah. Um, did you – you had a bunch of songs written for it already? Did you sort of just decide that was something you needed to do or what was the thought process? Everyone else that I knew had jobs and stuff and I didn't want to get a job. I just wanted to play music and I couldn't – and I was still busking intermittently and – trying to get solo shows and try and get a solo because I realised that, you know, if you play solo, you don't have to pay anyone and, you know, it's much more self-sufficient and, and an easier way to sort of um, make money, I guess. I realised that way back then. And so, and I already, I know I had all these songs that I'd been writing at various stages for Gin Club albums that, or, you know, I was always writing songs. So, you know, the, yeah. there was these ones that I'd go, oh, that one's not quite right for Gin Club or we'd try them out for Gin Club and everyone wouldn't be a fan and so I'd be like, okay, I'll save that one for... <laughs> um, something else or um and so um and then that sort of coincided with I, I became really obsessed with the drones so i i be you know i got really into that particularly that second album wait yeah. long by the river and the gin club played with the drones on my 30th birthday i remember um and i became good friends with gaz and fee from the drones and and all the all the guys in the drones and that they and i'd hung out i hung out with gareth a few times at like various Christmas things and I remember mentioning to him or or I'd gone there for something, I don't know, I'd gone out to where they lived in the country and I'd sort of said, um, um, oh, maybe I should come and record an album here because they were talking about doing demos and stuff and he's like, yeah. Yeah. And Gareth was like, yeah, you totally should. And I was sort of so, you know, I was, I thought Gareth was amazing, you know, I was like, and we were friends and it was quite the, quite the bromance sort of thing and I was like, (laughs) oh, yeah, totally. Like that would be incredible. So I thought, this is it. I have to do it. So we went to um, we went to Havilah, where Gareth lived in the subalpine region of Victoria, with Ulla from the Gin Club playing bass and Gus playing yeah. drums and another friend of mine, Robert Cranny, and and of yours playing yeah. keys and stuff and co-producing and yeah, did the album. So and just tried to make it as weird as possible. But yeah. So that was produced by Gareth and Rob. Yeah, and Bobo. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, you call him Bobbo, I call him Robbo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> None of us submit to each other's <laughs> mm. nickname. <laughs> totally. Um, and I remember you telling me this, I'd never noticed it before. I really love that album, The Cat. Um, I never noticed it didn't have any hi-hats until you told me. Was yeah. Why, why, did you ha- why did you make that decision? Oh, it was just something that Gaz mentioned. I mean, the, the, the main things that 
I was really into before that album were like Talk Talk and and that Scott Walker documentary. Um, not so much his music, even though I do love Scott Walker's music, but it was more the way he went about making the album where he would not let the musicians hear the songs and he'd just try and get this spontaneous approach to the, to the you know, and I, that was something I'd already started to really fall in love with through doing the Young Liberals recordings because I'd realised yeah. that a lot of the recordings I did with them, even though they were these songs that we'd just written and recorded, they were some of my favourites, whereas I couldn't really listen to any of the Giant stuff or the Gin Club stuff because it was just too... Um, I don't know, I'd listened to it so many times. Yeah. Um, particularly like Junk where we'd done a double album um, and, you know, I'd been involved pretty much with every single mix and every single session, you know, so. Yeah. Um, Too close. Yeah, and I think, and you just sort of learn to accept that that's the way it's going to be. But uh, the more you can get, you know, and I'm still trying to get, as you know, trying to get towards an, a way of recording these days now that's even still a b even more close to that than, you know what the cat was but yeah so were you um, actually practicing that not letting people hear the songs before well you i can't remember for the cat whether i let people yeah i we definitely they definitely had heard the songs before the cat because we went and did a pre-production thing up at the farm yeah um, my sister's farm so everyone had sort of heard the songs and we'd worked on them a bit um for that album um but when we got the guest players in like the julian wilson who played saxophone and uh, Piotr Nowotnik, who played um, all the strange flutes and um, and the Swedish bagpipes, um, I wouldn't, I didn't let them hear the songs. So I just said, wow. you know, this is the key. It's in. I'll give you three passes. Really? Um, yeah, because I just wanted that spontaneity. Yeah, so. So um, lucky they they were good at their instruments. Well, very good. <laughs> yeah, very very good. So, I mean, Julian's just a. Oh God, Julian's just a genius. So yeah. Um, you you had all of those songs written already, and then you, um, you sort of yeah did them yeah. at the farm. And I'd been doing more and more solo shows leading up to that, obviously. And I'd done an EP before that as well. And I had a manager, Dominic Miller, um, yeah, who who was sort of help encouraging me and stuff. And um, or actually, you no, know, maybe the album. Maybe the album was finished before Dom came on board. I can't remember. But anyway, I had I had this EP that I'd done to take because I'd started going down to Melbourne because I started falling in love with Melbourne and I'd started going to do solo tours to Melbourne. I remember that was the first, that was a big thing. I'd gone down and booked like four or five shows in Melbourne and I'd stay down there for a week and stay with Gus. And that was one, one of those trips that I ended up going out to Havilah the first time. And, um, and yeah, and I thought I need something to sell there. So I'd made this EP which had a few of my Gin Club songs and a few of other songs because... I'd, I'd, there's a few people that I'd given this sort of demo tape to of my solo stuff. Yeah. Over the, like, the, the, the 10 years leading up to that. So there were all these people that had <laughs> some of these songs already. It's They're still floating around somewhere. Um, a few of the songs like Bats that got ended up on. Anyway. But Yeah. But, yeah, so, um, yeah, the songs, it, to answer your question in a very short way, the songs <laughs> were all written. Yeah, yeah. And then, and you recorded one of um, Robbo's songs as well. Did yeah, you record I, anyone else's songs for that? No, or the, just, the just Bobbo's. I really wanted to do one of Bobbo's because it, yeah, it felt like he was, you know, needed, I don't know, not needed encouragement because he's not the kind of guy that needs encouragement, but it just felt like um, I owed that to him because he'd been put so much faith in my music and really yeah. helped me feel confident about my compositions and feel and confident about my songwriting. And he's a beautiful songwriter. Oh, he's incredible. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and an incredible man, a beautiful man. So, like, yeah. Um, so, yeah, he was, like, I really wanted him involved and I really wanted to do one of his songs. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I always felt bad that that 
that was my favorite song on the album. It's <laughs> <laughs> It's still great. I mean, I I've yeah, yeah. I've become a lot more attached to the other songs now that I've played them with you. Yeah. Um but I think that on the initial listen of that album, I remember texting you and saying, "Dude, you've written like an absolute gem. Like that that <laughs> that's a hit." <laughs> well, that was the thing. Everyone was like, "Play it um that should be the single. That should be the single. And I was like, okay, cool. And then, but then for some reason, we decided on going with the coward. And yeah, I mean, who knows? So, um, can you tell me? I, I think you're, I know that you say you play PlayStation most of the time these days, but I still yeah. see you as one of the most prolific friends that I have. You always have new songs and you always have new ideas. And you have so many bands that you write for, which I don't know if that's a burden or a blessing. <laughs> um, but can you tell me how you approach a song? Like what's your um, what's your process? I know that's maybe a silly question because I know it probably changes a lot, but do you have a process? Oh, well, no. I mean, I oh – God, I'm so superstitious about this. So I, I just don't – and people always say that, like, you're so prolific. And I'm like, I don't do anything. I never play guitar. <laughs> I never play guitar. I – um, but I guess when I do the, the the two or three times that I do every year, I tend to write songs. So it's sort of, it's weird. I don't know. I mean, at the moment, as you know, with this new album, I've approached it through not writing any songs and coming up with stuff in the studio. Although that's a little bit of a lie because two of the songs on the new album are, were ones that I'd sort of written before, as you know. So yeah. or, or I'd come up with lyrics or bits for and then... Um, but yeah, my process, I guess, if I could sum it up, is to just not try not to think about it as much as I can. Um, I mean, I, I've realised I need more of a balance between not thinking about it and actually going, well, you're a musician. You could be, you should be writing all the time. And, yeah. and, and I, but I don't. And I, I write in a diary. I mean, I guess I can tell you about how I write lyrics. So I write, yeah. um, I write stuff down all the time in, in my notebook or in my, my diary and then I'll just go back. Um, if I'm on a plane or, and I'll go back through my diary for the last couple of months and then I'll, there'll be little snippets of lyrics and stuff and I'll just sort of start to collate them and yeah. rearrange them until they, and then, but then other times a whole, one lyric can be the impetus for a whole song, you know, you, you just go, that lyric's got to be, it, it, it tells a whole story itself and then the music yeah. sort of, um, and then with Honoma, we've been writing a lot too within the studio. So we've just been, and that's been really quite good because Jacqueline, who's our bass player, um, and my girlfriend, and and she's just learning to play bass, so she doesn't know, she doesn't actually physically have the um, the ability to play a lot of notes quickly. Yeah. So, but she has excellent rhythm. So you can write these um, parts that you go, oh well, you're sort of limited, but those limitations are, are the best thing ever. I mean, yeah, I agree. So. Um, and also her enthusiasm is just really infectious. So yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I <laughs> I used to. I used it's to. It's hard to talk about, isn't it? Yeah, with Giants, we would go in and we'd rehearse two or th- once or twice or three times a week, and we'd just work on these songs and have come up with whole sections that just get discarded, and that still happens to an extent. But I'm much more. I just sort of wait for the songs to come to me these days. Like I try not to. Yeah pursue it too much I just wait until something really grabs me and I go that has to be a song or I write down a title um which is something I got from the young liberal stuff and just yeah. wait wait for it to sort of write itself but yeah and do you, uh, your lyrics are um sometimes quite verbose do you ever get stuck on words or stuck on lyrics 
Oh, all the time. But I mean, I've just learned once again to just sort of um, try not to think about it too much. I mean, I just try to, I do take the lyric writing pretty seriously, but then if I come up with something really crazy when, when I'm singing it live or when I'm demoing it, quite often I'll just keep that stuff, you know, because it's like, yeah. well, that came from somewhere, you yeah. know. I mean, I just think making one thing more important than another or thinking about it too much is just death. I mean, that's just for me though because I know a lot of people that do it very differently. But um, I feel like at this stage now I know what I want to do as far yeah. as a song. Um, so I just you just let your subconscious sort of um, go with it or something. I mean, I just don't know. I'm, I'm so superstitious. I'm so worried that if I think about it too much that I'll never be able to write another song or something. Yeah, I, I could definitely yeah. get that too. Yeah. It's interesting at the moment I'm trying to write all these raps with Quan and yeah. writing raps is so hard for me as a person. Well, there's so who, many like, words. I mean, there's so, so many words. <laughs> and this is the thing. I remember when rap, because I was into rap, we, I mean, not, I was into rap from like <laughs> the 60s. But like my, we lived in, night when we first moved to Brisbane, we lived with this kid from Brooklyn, this B-boy Jewish Russian guy. Yeah. Um, and he, and I mean, I'd been into, when I was a kid, everyone was into like, you know, two live crew and yeah, yeah. Um, run DMC and stuff. Yeah. But, um, but then he put us onto Wu-Tang and stuff and we started listening to Wu-Tang Clan and stuff. And then you'd have these rock guys going, oh, you know, even back then there was people, there was resistance from rock people saying, you know, rap music's stupid. And, and you're like, dude, you know, the average, just the average rap song makes like Bob Dylan look like a fucking... <laughs> like a like a dance you know these guys are like these guys are speaking not only are they speaking in this completely authentic like honest like pretty much speaking like that's how they talk but they're talking about stuff that i mean it is still all mythologized obviously you know none of the yeah you know, all this nwa stuff's pretty hilarious like but like the you know they're still mythologizing themselves but it's it's like you know they're incredible and there's like so many words like the, the, the whole story is I mean, that Ghostface Killer song, it's the one I always quote to people, that um, Shaky Dog song. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, I love that song. And it's just like a whole ep- a whole series of The Wire yeah. in, in yeah, one totally rap, you know. And it's just, it's got humour and it's got pathos and it's got um, just everything. You just get goosebumps the whole way through. And I mean, yeah. I think Eminem was the gateway for a lot of people as well because he was white or whatever. And yeah. And he's a went, pretty you know, good storyteller. Oh, and his rapping's really good, you know. So, like, I think people went, oh, fuck, you know, these these rap guys. But, yeah, and I, and I remember, and that, that, that was another, just to digress a bit, but I, I remember when I first said Aussie hip-hop, I was like, this is wrong. You know, this is wrong, <laughs> it's not wrong, authentic. wrong, 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 wrong. <laughs> but then I realised this is what made me start singing in a more Australian accent, that and also, you know, I guess Gaz from the Drones and a few other people, but I went... The reason I hate this so much is because I can't stand to hear my own accent. Like, yeah, that's why I'm upset. I'm not upset because of any cultural appropriation or anything. I'm upset because I don't like hearing people sing the way that Australians talk. That's how bad our cultural cringe is and stuff. You know. I agree. I have the mm. same the same issue, and it's really hard coming back to me trying to rap. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's it's really hard for me because Quan has a really quite a good flow and you can't really tell his accent in his rapping style. No. And then when I tr- when I try to rap, I feel like I sort of have to imitate either him or imitate um, Americans. Yeah. Um, and I find that oh, I sort of you, a I, weird thing. But I think do. no matter how much you think you're imitating, you end up sounding 
really like white no, and German. Like, like, no, like no one else. I mean, I've heard that that um, chocolate milk's amazing. So <laughs> I reckon, you know, I mean, I think everyone, no matter whether it's Bob Dylan or Wu-Tang Clan or Saya or Ben Salter or whatever, everyone just thinks that they're sort of shit on some level. I mean, That's I just, true. But the difference is that you either do it or you don't. Yeah, You either exactly. do it even though you think that you're shit and you just go, well, I'm shit but I'm just going to do it because even yeah. if, if I just do it, that makes me – better than 90% of people who think they're shit and just don't do it or are, or are shit but just don't do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think personally I um I do it because A, it, it's fun and funny and B, uh, it's so 100% out of my comfort zone yeah. that, that I feel like I owe it to myself to do it because... Totally, yeah. You know, and I think that, that that's sort of... I don't know if this is the same for you as a songwriter but... For me, you know, I'm a pretty um, shy, kind of insecure person and and for me to agree to do big shows or for me to agree to play keyboards for someone that, you know, that, that isn't – songs that I don't know that I have to learn and all of that stuff is um, – that's scary to me but I yeah. think I, I agree to do it because – it is scary and I think yeah. that, that helps me get over the, yeah. the fear I mean, a I, bit. I, I always feel bad because I'm the complete opposite and I'm always bullying people like you and like Bridget and Connor and all these people that are quite <laughs> uncomfortable doing this stuff. You know, they're like, they don't feel comfortable on stage. They don't. Whereas I just, I, I never get nervous. Like I just don't. It's amazing. Give, I, I just don't give a shit. I mean, I don't know what it is. Like I, <laughs> I want people to like it. I really do. And I, and I care. But part of me is just like, I just don't. I don't know why. I don't know whether it's... But then you've been performing since you were 18 as well. I, yeah. I don't know why it's... Why it is uh, I, that I have this confidence. I don't know where I got it from, but I'm... Well, I, I think people like me need people like you. And that's yeah. what that's what what makes the relationship work and the, yeah, and totally. the music work. When, you know, because I think... I think like that with, with anyone that I play with, I, there's always like a really confident figurehead that... That it that is really encouraging and really like, you know, like the um, I don't know, just like a person who who makes shit happen. Yeah, well, I mean, I take that role pretty seriously now. I realised sort of early on. I mean, because I always, I guess, when you grow up and you're a, a nerdy, lonery, not lonery, but you know, I was pretty, I was a nerd, you know, and so yeah. you identify with the shy people that you know are the loners and lay in the cut and never say anything. And that's the person I always imagined that I wanted to be, but I, I'm just not that person at all. Yeah. And it's and then during my twenties, I sort of realised, oh, well, there's no use trying to be this person that you're not. Just be the loud. You're just always going to be this loud, um, <laughs> control freak sort of person. That's your personality. So you can either use it for good or for bad. You know, like and so I just I try to encourage other people as much as I can. I try to, um, yeah, get people who aren't necessarily or have never played before. I mean, that's what the whole gin club thing was really. None of those people yeah. have really played. Um, and I'm, I, you know, I, I love it because I'm like, I'm seriously evangelical about people playing in bands. I just think it's one of the best things that anyone can do, you know. I to, agree. For their confidence and to realise that it's, it's, it's a form of art that most people are comfortable with, I think, you know. I mean, some people say, oh, I'm not really into painting or I'm not really into, I don't know, I don't go and see the theatre or anything but if you talk to them about music they'll be like oh yeah I know music and then and, and it's so democratic punk rock and stuff and yeah I mean I just think that everyone should be in a band yeah I think so too and you know yeah. coming from the other side of, of someone who's never really been the control freak although I think when I started doing my solo stuff and I yeah. um, got people to be in my band 
I, I learned a lot about being the person that was enthusiastic and the person that was driving the, the boat. But yeah, um, yeah, I don't know. I just think it, it's really important to, to have those people around. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a hard balance to strike between, um, and I've I've definitely gone down the path of just being a pain in the ass for a long time, <laughs> and, and basically projecting my own desires and insecurities onto the, the gin club, particularly um, for a while. You know, I was really just cracking, and I mean, but you, you have to realize, and I mean, that was one of the other reasons why I started doing the solo thing, because you've got to realize that other people just don't necessarily want the same things as you, and they don't all want to go and I was like we should move to Europe and yeah <laughs> you know live on the floor and people were like I don't want to live on the floor yeah I don't want to live on the floor <laughs> yeah so um yeah live on the floor and sleep in the street and <laughs> dance in the marketplace I don't know whatever they do over there do you feel like you're still in that phase of your life where you would sort of sacrifice human comforts for your music oh not for, it's not for my music it's Music for me is a vehicle for me to be able to do all those other things. I mean, I I just do want to go and sleep on. I'm happy. I mean, I am getting a bit old now to be sleeping on floors, but <laughs> uh, or living on floors. But um, I mean, yeah, I just want to do everything. I want to do all the things. I want to I want to see everywhere and do everything. You know, it's like I mean, I'm I sort of find it weird that everyone doesn't want to do that. Yeah, and and I, and I find music's a great vehicle for me to be able to do it you know i can travel and i mean i i mean i love i love music obviously i love performing particularly and i and i love being in the studio and i love making up and it's still really magical for me and and um and i love playing with like i mean playing with jacqueline now in this band and she's never done yeah. it before and she's never done or any of the stuff so she's never made posters she's never you know, been played to a room with no one in the room, um, (laughs) you know, and had that feeling of camaraderie. And I'm like, Jacqueline, you know, from now on, you're not a civilian anymore. You're not just a person that goes to see shows. You're you're in a band. Yeah. You're, you're, you're a soldier now. It is. It's like, it's, (laughs) it's empowering. It is so empowering. And I mean, this will sound really patronizing, but I think particularly for young women and stuff, in this, you know, I mean, I'm, these days not so much, but I still think, you know, like it's it's a really powerful thing for oh, a girl to be able to, or a young woman to be able to like in this field that's sort of so dude, you know, dude yeah. bro oh, heavy. Sure. It, it gives you so much confidence. You just go like, God, I don't need to be technically the best or like anything like that. Just doing it. Just the power. When you see a man or a woman on the stage playing music, and that power, it just grabs you and you're like, God. And now when I, I find it hard to go and watch bands because if they're really good, all I want to do is like be in that band. Yeah. <laughs> or like be doing their lights or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. yeah. That's lovely. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. I think there's something really powerful about being in a band and I think it helps you get over a lot of fears in everyday life knowing that you can be in front of people playing or or being in front of nobody playing too like that's yeah. a whole other skill set yeah um and a whole other like weird ego breaking thing that you you learn how to deal with yeah um, totally i think it's yeah i think you're right i think everyone should be in a band yeah or i mean just do something and i, I think it's important that you do it in public at some stage when people say oh well i do some painting and some poetry for myself it's like no one cares if you do it for yourself. Like, I don't, give, I don't want to hear about your poetry that you do for <laughs> yourself. Like, do, put it in a journal or, or, like, print it anonymously and leave it in the street or something. Or just do something. But you've got to share it. I mean, that's what 
that's what it's about, I think. You know, it's not about doing it for yourself. I mean, I, I don't want to discourage anyone that might be listening who's like, oh, well, I'll just burn all my poetry. <laughs> or whatever but i just think it's it's that making that step of of going well because i see it with jacqueline and, I, and i'm the same it's like you just think this could be complete shit but it's like oh well it's my shit you know yeah but i think i was actually just thinking today um i was listening to a podcast about um you know i think it was someone saying that that everybody should perform as well and mm. and i was thinking but wouldn't it be so lovely to be like harry nelson and never play live <laughs> Like just yeah. create all these magical pieces in the studio totally. and then never have to actually deal with yeah. that oh, live I can, I, feeling. That would be incredible. But, I mean, I love that live feeling. So, I mean. I, yeah, yeah, you're different. And you're amazing at it. And you've got that golden voice that, you know, that makes it all worthwhile. Um, yeah. So did Harry Nilsson though. <laughs> it's just too lazy. That's true. <laughs> and people bought records back then. So, he could just make records. People would buy them. It's like That's problem solved. I mean, I think if I never had to go on tour again, I'd be. I wouldn't. I just go on holiday, like do a few yeah. shows, like you know. But unfortunately, these days you can't make money out of just making albums. So yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of making money, I know that both of you and I hate talking about money, but you <laughs> have a um, you basically make a living off making music, and the yeah, way you totally. do that is to play a lot. Yeah. Do you ever feel like you play too much? Oh, all the time. But then I've just realised it's like. Every time I go, oh, I better go and get some work because I'm playing too much. I'm like, fuck that. I don't want to work at a bar. Like, <laughs> I'll just yeah. go and do a gig. And then all these people say, oh, you're playing too much. Like, you know, you're going to burn. And I'm like, well, I'll go and get a gig in Ballarat then. Or I'll go and get a gig <laughs> in Adelaide. And that's what you do. You just try not to play. I mean, in Melbourne, I moved here so I could play. Yeah. Because you know, there's heaps of venues and I can. So I play all the time in Melbourne. And people go, and I might get, you know, and I like, I think it's important that you tell people how much you earn and how much money you make because otherwise they might get the wrong idea. So, like, when I play solo in Melbourne, I get anywhere from about 250 to about $400 for playing at a at a bar. Yeah. Um, and people go, oh, but, you know, if you didn't play all the time, like, you could get heaps, you could sell out. And I'm like, yeah, but I... I can't just play once every six months yeah. and pay all my bills that way. It's not, that's not the, for, I mean, I, for other people can and they have other jobs and they get other jobs. And I've been told my whole life by managers and by booking agents, oh, you need to get a job. And I'm like, this is my job. Yeah. Like, you can't tell me what to do. And girlfriends as well, ex girlfriends, you got to stop living in a dream world. Stop living in a dream world. Like, you can't, you know. And I'm like, well, no, hang on a minute. I can, I can play. I, I, I have a, what I would consider a pretty amazing lifestyle. Like, I'm going to New Zealand in a, three weeks. I'm going to Japan in the middle of the year. You know, I travel all the time. I travel all over Australia all the time. I meet amazing people all the time and I play all the time. And it's yeah. like, that's just, and I like. That's you what know, you want to do. I mean, it does get the shits being away from my girlfriend sometimes and um, being away and not having, and you know, it, it is, it is constant work. You know, I'm always booking shows three months or four months in advance. And, and if I let myself go for two weeks or, a week, then it means in three months I'm going to be really struggling. But like, you know, that's not a real problem. It's not like, it's not like I'm fucking, yeah. I mean, I haven't been on the dole for, I mean, over 10 years or something. That's great. More than that, probably more like 20 or something. I don't know. It's been a very long time. So. Do you see yourself being able to sustain this kind of lifestyle for a long time? Well, for a while. I mean, I do, I get very anxious about when I get older because I've got no superannuation. Um, and no money saved so it's but then I feel like um, it sounds like a hippie thing to say but like I feel like 
the friends and the goodwill and the the stuff that I have, it, it'll things will take care of themselves. I think if you just try and be a good person and and treat people ethically and and you know at the moment as as you know I'm I'm sort of I'm completely sick of the music business. I mean I sort of have nothing to do with it. Yeah. I mean I don't get played on Triple J. I don't. Um, I get played on Double J, so I guess I do have something to you know, and I play shows and. But just in terms of whatever, there's this perception like Rolling Stone and, and that's not to uh, Matthew Coit if you're listening. I love your work. and But like, you know, I don't, people read that and they watch the Arias or whatever and they think that that's the music business or something. And yeah. It's like, well, I have just nothing to do with it. Like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to sound ungrateful or. Oh, no, you're not. You're not sounding ungrateful. Yeah. It's just um, a completely different way that I think. I think you're the hardest working musician that I know. And oh, I'm definitely. Well, I, yeah. I mean, apart from all the PlayStation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, like I, I really respect that that you do it that way. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. I just sometimes, you know, like you're, you're busy a lot and I worry that you don't have time to relax ever because you're always playing shows. Yeah. I mean, I don't – but then I'm always sort of relaxing a bit, you know. It's, it's this perfect sort of work-life balance. I mean, I think it is anyway. I mean, because I – I have so much time to myself and I just spend it playing Overwatch because it's the greatest <laughs> game ever made. <laughs> and everyone should go and get a PlayStation and, and play it. Before you go, can you tell me your story? Oh, look, I've got so many, but I, I just thought of another one while we were talking before. I'm just asking people to tell me their strangest gig story or just the weirdest thing that's happened to them because they do what they do. Yeah. All right, so this is a pretty good one. There's a few good ones. There's, there's one about the time we went to Vanuatu and we played at this with Giants of Science, with all these bands that were basically reggae bands and everyone was on Carver. <laughs> that was pretty good. And we drank like so much money in in bar tab because we thought it was free that they chased us to the airport to get the money back. Um, <laughs> so that was pretty good. But the really good one was when we went to Muse Expo um, in, in, in LA and so we were playing at the House of Blues. This um, was with Giants? With the Gin Club. With oh, the Gin, Gin Club, Club. yeah. Um, and so... Um, yeah, we went over and we're playing at the House of Blues and then later on after we played that night, um, Sly Stone was supposed to be playing. Wow. And this was in 2000, when was it, 2007 or 8 or something. And like, you know, as you, a lot of people probably, if you've never heard of Sly Stone, he's this guy who was huge in the 60s, uh, amazing, genius musician, incredible, yeah. like a band leader and visionary. And then he just took a lot of the dergs. And sort of <laughs> receded into a sort of pit of um, of sort of cocaine and, and you know, it was just never seen, what never heard of, you know. He was this mythical figure, you know. Yeah. He never played shows. And then we hear that Sly Stone's going to play, at, you know. And so we were like, oh, my God. And then we, and so me and Dan Mansfield, because yeah. Dan's the classic rock fan. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Gonna, I'm trying to see, we've got to sneak in, we can do this. And Dan and I were quite let's shall we say inebriated at the time and <laughs> and we were like convinced that we could you know get into the the sly show and so we we met this guy this um and he was said he was part of the entourage he's like yeah man man you just stick with me i'll get you in and so we he's like we'll come around to the back and then it was just turned into this pied piper thing because one person would speak to another person go, oh yeah this guy's gonna get us in and so by the time <laughs> We start this take this whole process took like an hour of like wrangling and like we just got to wait here and then I'm gonna go and speak to someone. Else. By this stage, like well, the two of us have turned into literally thirty people, <laughs> just following this guy. And he was this really fly sort of dude. You know, he had a big. He was totally pimped out. 
um, had a big hat and, you know, like total, like, you know, family stone vibe. Um, and anyway, after this big hour, we're just getting more and more drunk, more and more excited. We're going to get in here. We're going to get backstage. We're going to be back hanging out with Sly Stone. <laughs> oh, my God. And there's like 30 of us, you know, and, you know, as anyone who's ever tried to sneak in, you know, you can't do it with 30 people. And by the time we get to this door, this, I'm like, oh, I don't know how this is going to go down. And we get to this door. And this huge black security guy opens the door and just looks out and just laughs and just shuts <laughs> the door. And me and Dan are there going, oh, looks like we're not going to. But then apparently his band came out. We, we found out later on that his band played for like an hour and then he came out for like two minutes. Oh, And just sort of lucky. stumbled through like one song and then got <laughs> off. But um, that was pretty, that was pretty cool story. I don't know. That is pretty, a really good story. Yeah. Oh, and I've got another good one. I've got another yeah. good one. Can I tell Go. you one more? Yeah, of course. All right. So I was overseas in, um, in London. I was doing shows, but not, not heaps. I was mainly there for like a, a holiday thing. Um, but like I was hanging out with this friend, um, Tanya Falconer, who you might know, a Brisbane girl. And she was working um, at this really swish hotel in Kensington, I think. Yeah. Where they would get all the bands to stay. It was one of those hotels where the band stayed. And she was yeah. like in charge of liaising with the bands, you know. And I was there at the time of year. I don't know when they have Glastonbury, but it was around then. So um, summer, I guess. Yeah. Summer in, in the UK. And so Glastonbury was on and they also had this soul review on like a, um, a Motown Records, Supremes. It was like Ann Wilson and all this stuff was on. And then Michael Jackson dies. Right, so Whoa. we're having drinks and we see this thing on the news and it's like Michael Jackson has died. And we're like, oh my God. And we're just the whole of London. We're in the middle of London. Starts every car's belting out Michael Jackson. We start drinking yeah. heavily because everyone's like, oh my God. And then all the Stax people come back from the Stax review show. And wow. Wilson's there. I'm out the front smoking cigarettes with the Temptations, you know. Oh like my we're, God. And we're asking him about like, about, did you know M MJ? And he's like, yeah, you know, we knew him and blah, blah, blah. And, and they were talking about how one of them was talking about the temptations, was talking about how, you know, Jesus had saved him and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I met all these new friends and and they'd said that David Crosby was staying at the hotel. And I'm like, oh my God, like David Crosby, like that, that's pretty weird. Anyway, so we're getting really drunk. Michael Jackson's died. Everyone's drunk. And I look over and I've got all these new friends, as you do when someone like this like happens, you've got all these new friends that you're all bonded with. And I'm like, oh my God. And this was this, this um, black black guy from London who was like this total London and he'd never even heard of David Crosby. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what the equivalent would be because he was like totally into like, I don't know, jungle and R&B and house and stuff like, and I'm just like, oh, he's just like this old hippie guy but, you know, he's in, you know, Crosby still that young. He's like, no, yeah. never heard of them. Anyway, so I'm like, that's him. He's like, well, you got to go and talk to him. I'm like, well, I can't go and talk to him. Like, He's like, yeah, just go and say hello. And I'm like, I can't just go and say hello. I feel I hate those people. He's like, just go yeah. and shake his hand, man. You obviously – and this guy doesn't even know who he is, you know. So I'm like, okay, okay. And so I walk over and David Crosby's standing there and there's a guy with his back to me talking to him. And David spots the potential punisher approaching. Oh, no. And starts to have this really nervous look in his eye like he's, you know, oh, my God, I'm going to get punished. And he's obviously quite a nervous man. <laughs> he obviously gets punished regularly. And so the guy who he's talking to sees that David's not talking to him anymore and he turns around and it's David Gilmore from Pink <laughs> Floyd. And it's, so there I am, I'm standing and there's David Gilmore and David Crosby standing in front of me. And I just said <laughs> what I always say and I'm like, I just wanted to thank you guys for all the happiness you've brought me and all the amazing music you've made and um, just wanted Aww. to shake your hand. And David Gilmore is like this amazing quintessential British he's like well that's always lovely to hear isn't it and shook my hand very vigorously and David Crosby's just sort of given me like he's just like this 
dead-eyed look and sort of extended his hand and shook it. Handlebar move. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and then just – and I just turned around and went off. And I didn't get a photo or anything because I hate that shit. Yeah, I just, yeah. I'm like – and then I immediately went and rang Dan Mansfield. <laughs> I'm like, Dan, I just met David Crosby and David Kimmel. It's like the, it's like the folk prog nexus, Dan. And he's like, did you get a photo? I'm like, I don't need a photo because if people think I'm making this story up, they can get fucked. I don't care. <laughs> Why would I make it up? So anyway, that's that's pretty much my my best. Yeah, I love that story. story. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks. I'm sorry it's taken so long. Oh, that's all right. You know, yeah. busy playing shows every night. Yeah, yeah, playing Overwatch. More like it. <laughs> uh, if anyone out there is an Overwatch fan, my um, PSN name is uh, it's it's S L T Y D G seventy seven Salty Dog seventy seven No vows. We'd love to have you on our team. Excellent end to the podcast. (laughs) See you soon. See ya.